The views, opinions, and advice expressed in this podcast are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Patterson Media or the sponsors of this program. Breathe out. Wellness is was devastating when she looked at me one day and she said, so do you live around here? I lived in so much fear of the world not loving me, hating me, maybe even killing me because I was gay. Life is an inside job. It's not an outside job. We now know that up to 40% of all cases of dementia can be avoided through our lifestyle choices. It's a deep awareness. It's really practicing the art of just being in the moment. Welcome to Choosing Wellness, your one-stop shop for practical advice about how to attain better physical and mental well-being so that instead of just surviving, you're thriving. Choosing Wellness is powered by Patterson Media. In this series, we'll share a health journey and explore the trends and talk to the experts that will help you live your best life, and we'll have fun doing it. In this episode, we learn the importance of feeling safe a being real story on a journey through dementia, unlocking healthy food for our body and brain, why mindfulness is so good for us, and the six pillars of brain health. I'm Linda Freeman. Come join the journey of choosing wellness. Health Tag. We know hashtags help link us to content we're looking for in the world of social media. So we've created health tag. Like hashtags, we explore what's trending in the world of wellness. Often in our lives, we can feel shame or guilt without a sense of safety for ourselves or even those we care about. Thomas Kevin Dolan has over 17 years of experience as a certified coaching expert in the field of what he calls the human shadow, as well as relationships, courage, heart healing, and life design. And he works as a guide to help people on their own life journey. Thomas, it is so great to connect with you. I know for many people, there's a fear of being judged, of not being liked, and of being bullied. And this can be a tough road, and a road you know well. I lived in so much fear of the world not loving me, hating me, maybe even killing me because I was gay. There wasn't anybody to actually keep me safe. So I would find distraction. I would find mechanisms to be able to do that. When I began to do my work, when I did some therapy work, it was a therapist that said to me when he noticed I was looking for somehow the outside world to keep me safe. He said to me, Thomas, what would it be like for you to be responsible for your own safety? What would it be like for you to actually find some level of self-love for you? What would your world be like? I mean, I took a breath, and I remember feeling scared when he asked me that. Interesting, he's asking me about fear, and I'm feeling afraid. But I then realized, I said, there's only two places I can come from in my life. One is love, and one is fear. And I had come out by that time, and I said, because I chose self-love as a place to come from, I see now that my world is a reflection of more love. And when I've chosen or caught myself choosing fear my world will reflect more of that back to me. And I think that's the case for a lot of people coming from that place of fear, fear of not being loved, of being judged, 
of saying the wrong thing and of not feeling safe. So how do we change? So the key would, first of all, be knowing that I now know I'm the one responsible for creating safety for myself. I mean, I know when I'm outside and the environment is not safe, it's still my work to get myself out of that. I was cultured into this notion of somebody else would actually keep me safe. And of course, when they didn't, it was tragic for me. But when I realized that they didn't even know that they weren't keeping me safe, I could let that go and then begin to move myself into this place of realizing that, oh, you mean it's me. I get to be the one to keep myself safe. Particularly as I moved into my formative adult years and did some work when I realized I came from fear so much and not love, landing on a strategy to be able to create safety for myself, knowing that I need to be grounded and knew who I was, present that to the world, kind of play in that energy for a little while, know who would hold me and love me and who wouldn't, let those that wouldn't love me go and really dive into those that would, it allowed me to realize that I do a really great job now of keeping myself safe. And I never hand that to anybody else. Not even my in, in my married relationship with my husband, he's not responsible for keeping me safe. It starts with the acknowledgement that you need to work on yourself. And this is such an important point. We often have the need to get something from someone else, that validation that I'm good enough, that I'm doing great. But that doesn't come easily, does it? No, it doesn't. It comes with grace, though. And then with grace, it does become easier. It will always be in this lifetime of mine for the incarnation, right? Being gay, there will always be this work. There will always be these little bit of triggers that would have me think that I'm actually not safe. When in fact, I've got all this evidence that suggests I am. But ultimately, the mantra for me is that only 100% of the time, I'm responsible for me. Now, that's a great statement and absolutely true. How do you use this in your coaching to help others? When I share that with clients and I'm coaching them with an invitation for them to lean into this responsibility for themselves, what's quite apparent is this notion of, and the story when somebody else is running your life or it's mom's fault or dad's fault or friend's fault or work's fault. You suck. I swear, these kids just don't even listen these days. You will always suck. I say to them, so the common denominator in all of that, mom, dad, work, friends, is what? And they'll eventually say, me. And I said, well, then what might be different for you if you took actually responsibility for a circumstance that you think you're the victim of or you're being victimized by and instead take your power back and live this way? Life is an inside job. It's not an outside job. And that's something you can relate to, learn from, and now share. When I really thought the world at some point in time would be okay with me being who I was, I was the one that was actually duping myself. When I became really okay and could love me for who I am, kind of warts and all, then I began to see the world doing that for me. I realized, wow, the true value of being 100% responsibility for our lives is freedom, peace, love, grace, and this idea of being able to be a reflection for those folks, thankfully in my coaching work, for those folks who are really struggling to think it's somebody else that's responsible for the misery in their lives. It isn't. You may not know the choices you're making that contribute to misery still being an energy alive in your life. And yes, with some work and some grace and some compassion and empathy for you, you can eventually get to that point. But you know what? What? We don't heal in isolation. We heal in community. We heal in community. 
Thomas, this is such a beautiful and strong statement. We heal in community. Now, can you talk a bit more about the power of words? What you said about words having consequences, and there is research around this. Yes. This scientific research that suggests that words have energy. The study was this, Wayne Dyer, kind of the father of transformation. Our words are really important. And ultimately, I've never thought of our words, I've never put them into the same kind of a context, that our words are really decrees of what it is that we want to attract and what do we want to create in our life. I watched him here in Vancouver. He had a person up on stage and he said, there's this little arm test you can do to test whether or not we're being true in our lives. So you can whisper a lie, your arm goes down. You can tell a truth and nobody can push your arm down. So he said, I want you to put the word love on your chest. This woman put the word love on her chest. Wayne had to put her arm out because he couldn't push it down. It was her truth. He then put the word Hitler on her chest. Put the arm out immediately. Her arm was completely weak. The science simply suggests that there's an energetic resonance with words. Love, hate, happy, sad. Seriously, it's fascinating to see the power of words. Now speak to the importance of how we talk to ourselves in the language that we use. This idea of how we speak of ourselves, the words we allow ourselves to hear from other people, and what we do with them or don't do with them. I mean, the story of of having the word fag hurled at me because I'd done my work and changed the energy and said, you know, I am that. I love that part of me. Nobody can ever use it against me. I've changed the energy of that word. The moment we are aware of what we let in, in terms of language, the language that we use, literally the language that we wear on our clothing, has everything to do with the energetic resonance that we pull into our lives from this amazing universe that we're all wandering in. Can you give an example? Oftentimes, it isn't what we think it is. It isn't what we say it is. It's actually bigger than that. It's this whole notion of somebody will say to me, glass half empty, glass full. And I say to them, what I see before I see full or empty, which could have me go to abundance full, it could go me empty pessimism. I say to them, but what about the fact that I am blessed to have a glass? Exactly. There are many folks that don't even have a glass. So I'm blessed to have a glass. It can be half full, it can be half empty. But my focus is on being grateful for the glass. This idea of life happens for us. It doesn't happen to us. And when you allow life to happen for you, you move yourself from the energy of being victimized by a circumstance in life that you've got a story of no control over. So from the most inane to the most painful, My coming out was so, so painful, right? I lost an entire world that existed. That was amazing. But overnight, it was gone, and most of them said, we hate you. It took me a long time to lean into how that was for me. And to this day, I would chronicle it by saying it was the scariest, most terrifying thing I ever did. And yet it was the most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life. And that was in 1988. What an incredible way to look at life, Thomas. An extremely difficult thing for you to do, but I'm sure it was freeing, although painful. The gifts from that pain, from that trauma, from a life disappearing, I choose to realize that was for me. And its purpose was for me to breathe into being the fullest and most authentic version of myself. And I get to have a conversation with you today. It blows me away. I could never have figured that out, and I don't waste my time attempting to do that, but I realize the mantra, life is always for me. It doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. I have to write that down. Life happens for you, not to you. 
Thomas, you're a ray of sunshine. Really. Like everything you said. Thank you. As I know this conversation is going to help many. Thank you. I think I'm complete. (laughs) To share in the discussion on today's episode, tag us using hashtag health tag. Being real. Dementia is a disease that affects 1 in 10 older Americans. Nearly 452,000 people over the age of 65 were living with diagnosed dementia in Canada in 2018. Nearly 85,000 people older than 65 were newly diagnosed. Those numbers are expected to rise as Canada's population ages. Currently, more than 55 million people have dementia worldwide, over 60% of whom live in low- and middle-income countries. Every year, there are nearly 10 million new cases. Dementia results from a variety of diseases and injuries that affect the brain. Alzheimer's is under the dementia umbrella, and it's hard to lose a loved one to this disease. Watch them slip away, eventually forgetting who you are. It's hard not to be angry or frustrated. Now, this is a snippet of a journey of how one woman used kindness, laughter, and love to get through losing her mom to Alzheimer's. This is Cindy's journey. This is Being Real. We noticed my mom repeatedly asking the same questions. And so that was sort of the beginning. And so my dad took her to their doctor and the doctor didn't do any testing and basically said, oh, there's nothing wrong with this woman. She's just fine. And then my dad got really sick. He was diagnosed with cancer. So for that year, we just dealt with my mom. It was very, very mild, just some forgetfulness and Then my dad passed, and then it was our journey, my brother and I, to really get my mom a proper diagnosis. They didn't know at the time Alzheimer's. They just called it dementia. As time progressed, there were all these little things that we learned along the way. I really tried to make it more about my mom because I still had those memories. My mom didn't. And yeah, it was devastating when she looked at me one day and she said, so do you live around here? You know, and I said, yes, I live around the corner. And she said, well, would you visit me more? You know, and I just said, yeah, absolutely. You know, and then I went in my car and bawled my eyes out. I didn't want her to get upset seeing me upset because that would upset her. So we tried to keep everything very cheery. You know, I think my brother and I both handled that really well. Not upsetting my mom and making her life happy. (laughs) You know, she liked to laugh a lot. So that's how we sort of handled that situation. We found as the dementia increased, there was anger with my mom because she didn't understand what was happening to her. There was sadness. And so I'd go there one day and she'd be like, where's my mom? Well, her mom passed away before I even met her. You know, I thought, does she want to relive that? Like, no, your mom's dead. I couldn't possibly say that. So I would just say, well, she's coming over later for a visit. So basically came these little lies that I really didn't think was a bad thing because instead of correcting her, she would just be, oh, she's coming over later. Okay. But then she would forget about it anyway. So 
Did it really matter in the moment that I was lying to her? No. Sometimes I'd go there and she would be sleeping in her bed in her little pajamas and she would be really sad. And so I would just climb into bed with her and I'd put my arms around her and I would sing to her sometimes or just hold her and I, I'm always really warm so she's always cold and she was like, oh, you feel so nice and warm. So I would just stay there to help her feel better and then say, you know, do you want to get up and get dressed and I'll make you some breakfast and if she didn't want to, I would leave it. I always find it leave things for five minutes and they forget. And so then we would approach the subject again of whatever I felt I needed to get her up, get her in the bathtub or whatever. So that's sort of how I approach the subjects by going along with the story. You can swim against the current or you can go with the current. I just chose to go with the current. I had a lot of support, my brother and my sister. You know, my brother lived with my mom. So that's just how we handled it. My mom still laughed and she loved dancing and she loved music. And so those are the things we tried to infuse. We tried to fool around a lot because my mom was always a kidder. And so that's sort of how we diffuse the situation and how we just didn't take it personally. We put our personal feelings aside to really help my mom through this whole journey of however long that journey was gonna be. We had no idea. Really, you have to put aside your own feelings and just don't correct them because it makes them angry. So anything we could do to change that frown upside down <laughs> is how we handled it. She was an incredible mom. She was like a lioness protecting her children. And I look upon all those wonderful memories that we had as kids. Both my mom and dad were the most incredible parents. Like I won the lottery in parents. You just have to look on being so grateful for having had my mom for 51 years of my life. And that's what I look at. I don't look at the sadness of her leaving because, you know, we're all going to die. And so we have to be grateful for all the things she taught me, how to love and how to laugh and have fun and how to cook. And those are all good things in life. So that's kind of how I dealt with it. I also had yoga in my life. That was really important. And I felt as the disease progressed, that helped me so much to find my center and to make sure that I took care of myself. That's sort of how I dealt with it, to find my happy zone, to make sure that I could make my mom smile. You know, because I heard all these horror stories about incontinence and anger, such anger. And I thought, we are going to avoid that 100%. And we're just always going to try to make her happy. And of course, I had an amazing husband in my life. So, yeah. There's no rule book. I think you just have to stay kind. And then you have to have an outlet for yourself so you're not sad whatever that outlet that fills your heart is how I think you're going to survive this journey. And that's my story. How to choose wellness. Brain aging disorders like Alzheimer's disproportionately affect women. 
So Women's Brain Health Initiative, WBHI, was born to help. By focusing its resources on research to combat brain aging disorders and by creating compelling preventative health education programs grounded in science so that we can all better understand the best ways to prolong cognitive vitality. Lynn Poslins is the president and founder of Women's Brain Health Initiative. Welcome, Lynn. It is so great to have you on, and I would love to start with where this idea came from and your involvement. First, thank you for having me. It's always great to share the work that we're doing, so I appreciate that. It was about 15 years ago, actually, when I was involved in fundraising for an institution here in Toronto. And that's when I discovered that women were more susceptible to brain aging diseases than men, but research still focused on men. And I was at the stage at the time I didn't have grandchildren, but it bothered me to think forward into the future that when I had grandchildren, I may not realize or recognize who they were. And that sort of started me down this path Plus, I'm a marketer at heart, and I'm a fundraiser, and I wanted to raise money for the cause first and the place second, so I started Women's Brain Health Initiative. We now know that up to 40% of all cases of dementia can be avoided through our lifestyle choices. 40%, again, Alzheimer's is the biggest cause of dementia, and women are more susceptible. I wanted to share this information with women, but also men, in terms of what they could do to protect themselves, because if you can reduce your risk by 40% and delay the onset of the disease. You know, everybody wants their body and their brain to go at the same time. So I wanted to be able to share that. I was shocked when I saw some of these numbers. I had no idea that women were more susceptible to be affected by dementia. So can we talk about that a little bit? Why are we not hearing more about this? No, it's not well known that up to 70% of all cases of dementia that affects women more than men. Because the feeling was, women outlive men, women live longer. So it it must be age related. And yes, age is a big risk factor for succumbing to diseases like dementia. But even discounting for age, a woman who, for instance, has the risk gene sitting beside a man that also has that risk gene, twice as many women will succumb to Alzheimer's as men. So there seemed to be something going on that made women more susceptible. But if the researchers weren't studying women, and there's different reasons as to why they haven't, then how are we going to have answers for women that better meet their needs? And also men, because even, say, in clinical studies, if they combine everybody together and don't separate out the findings by sex and gender, then you're not going to do right by the men the same way you're not going to do right by the women. And what I found, too, when I was looking, and you know, I always think, is this the reality? Is this the truth? There has been some connection around reproduction, as well as work and family, which is why women are affected more. Why are we seeing this and what are your thoughts? That's what the researchers are trying to now start to understand, especially with organizations like ours that are funding the female side of the story, right? Because they hadn't looked at it in the past. So one of the things that's being studied, for instance, by Dr. Jillian Einstein, who's the world's first research chair in women's brain health and aging, and we fund Dr. Einstein along with the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. She's studying hormones and the effect that that has. All women go through hormone loss, estrogen loss, as they go through menopause. And... We know that estrogen is neuroprotective. For instance, men's testosterone converts to estrogen in the brain. So is that one reason that they continue to have that protection longer? Sleep. We now know that sleep is important. Seven to eight hours every night for both men and women. Women don't tend to sleep well when they're having babies. They don't sleep well when their kids are, you know, teenagers. They like to talk to you at night so you don't sleep well. And then, you know, once you hit menopause again, you are sleep deprived. So... 
we know that sleep is important for getting rid of toxins in your brain and laying down memories. And again, if both men and women, but if women particularly don't sleep well, we also know that that has increases the risk for diseases like dementia. The thing again about dementia is you cannot have the Alzheimer's risk gene and you can still succumb. You can have the gene and not succumb. And that's the difference that lifestyle plays. So what are those lifestyle factors or choices that you can control that can help protect you either delay and or avoid altogether? And there's six keys or pillars of brain health that we like to share with people because this is important for you to understand what these lifestyle choices are so you can do more for yourself. So the first one is mental stimulation. You have to exercise your brain like it's a muscle. This helps build new neural pathways, cognitive reserves, so as one part of your brain starts to falter, other parts can take over. Exercise, physical exercise. You have to exercise your body. This increases oxygen flow and blood flow to the brain, so very important. Whatever you can do, just move. We know that food is very important. Things like fat and sugar, salt across the blood, brain barrier, put, put holes in your brain. De facto best type of diet for your brain is something called the MIND diet, which is a combination of the Mediterranean-style diet. Lean protein, fish, olive oil, nuts, fruits, vegetables, combined with the DASH diet, which is low sodium to control hypertension. It's easier to follow than the Mediterranean diet, and they also give you a cheat day, which is good. Sleep, as I mentioned earlier, seven to eight hours every single night, pulling an all-nighter and then sleeping in the next day does not count. Social activity. This helps lower depression and isolation, which can be precursors to dementia, and stress reduction. Stress prematurely ages all your cells, including your brain cells, so you want to do what you can to keep your stress in check. It can be journaling, it can be going for a walk in nature is very good for you, it can be having animals, it can be mindfulness meditation. Those are the six pillars of brain health, and it's very important that you do as many things in those pillars as you can. Well, and what's interesting about all of these things that you're talking about is, as well, Lynn, is that these are all pillars to health. And now that there's the strengthening of do these for your body, but do these for your mind. Let's keep both healthy by doing these six pillars that you just mentioned, right? Absolutely. And what's good for your heart is good for your brain. So it, it does work both ways. It does. And we need to put this all in place when we're young, not wait until we're like, oh, you know, I'm getting up there now. I better start thinking about these things. Yeah. So, so much of the imagery around diseases like Alzheimer's is an old person in a wheelchair, and that tends to be a late stage patient. But again, there are some cases of early onset or young onset, which is under 65, but it's a very small percentage of the population. Most people that succumb to dementia happens later on in life. But we do know that the younger you are, the stronger the protective effect. And I remember Dr. Sandra Black from Sunnybrook Hospital here in Toronto talked about a research study which showed the impact through neuroimaging of your brain health when you're in your 70s and older and the impact that exercise has. And the strongest decade for exercise for when you're older in terms of your brain and having it function the way that you want is exercising in your 20s. So what 20-year-old thinks about what I'm doing today is the impact when I'm in my 70s and 80s. And that's why it's important to talk about this issue and talk about it and try and engage people younger to start thinking about protecting their brain health. You know, then they won't succumb to things like dementia, like the baby boomer generation may be more subject to, because, you know, we didn't think about that. We didn't have access to the information. No, we didn't. And you take a look, too, at sort of the diet and very high processed part of the decades, right? 
I love the fact that you are focusing on that younger generation. I think that we can all do our part in that. The more they hear about it and the more it's talked about, the more it'll sink in and then hopefully we'll start to see the shift. Yeah, it's not easy. So to that point, we actually created a mobile app to help people. It's It's a habit tracker. It's free. It's called Brain Fit Habit Tracker. And you can get it on iOS or Android. And basically it gives you information and all kinds of habits against all six pillars of brain health. So it is unique in the marketplace, one, because it's free, and two, because it has over 100 habits in the various pillars. And again, it does take a while to establish new habits, but it can be simple things. Again, you know, if you're right-handed, brush your teeth with your left hand. So it's challenging your brain. When you're brushing your teeth, do squats. Do 10 squats a day if you need to up your exercise count. Like there's little things that you can do that can help you and keeping track of it will help you as well. So I do encourage people to download it. And that was through a grant from the Public Health Agency of Canada. It's a great app. It's so easy as well for anyone to access. And then it gives you that accountability piece too, right? Like I think whenever we're accountable for anything, we tend to do it a little bit more. Right. Even if you're accountable to yourself, it does help. I've gotten into bed and go, oh, I didn't drink that extra glass of water. I better go get one, you know, before my day passes. (laughs) Yeah. Can we go back and just talk a little bit about that 40%? If we do all of these things, if we follow what you're saying here and, and it's being talked about, which is great, that we can reduce our risk of dementia by 40%. We're not going to solve all of the cases. You know, this isn't the one thing, but there have been a few drugs which help delay maybe the fall off, but there's no cure. Again, if we can take control of some things, which we can in this case, and we know that this is beneficial for your brain health, why wouldn't people at least try to do it, right? So I think that's the important message here is you are empowered to do things. You're empowered to help yourself and your loved ones by sharing this information. We have all kinds of great resources that are free, but we've got podcasts and we've got videos. There's lots of different information. We'd like to serve it up in different formats. And we always try and keep it as current as we can in terms of when the latest research comes out. We want to share it with everybody. Read it, watch it, hear it, download it. Like it's just so easy and the information there is just incredible for people to really get the resources, the information, understand it, share it. And there are some incredible people in general, but women behind this initiative. You know what? We couldn't do it alone. Obviously, we're a charity and we do rely on a lot of people to help share the message like you're doing, which is fantastic, so that you know more people can help themselves and their loved ones. Women tend to be the caregiver as well. And all this information is incredibly helpful for caregivers because very often they put themselves last and they too can succumb themselves to disease and dementia because they don't look after themselves and the stress is beyond. So I encourage people that are also caregivers and women two and a half times more likely to be a caregiver for someone with dementia, you know, that they do take advantage and they do whatever they can to keep their stress in check. Yeah. And just reflecting back on those six pillars, I mean, when you read those, it's so true, like stress management, women often have just so much stress because they can be the caregiver or have, you know, pulled in all different kinds of directions. They put themselves last, they don't get in the exercise or they're eating on the fly. So they don't have the best nutrition and and then different stages of your life, you're just not getting that sleep. So even not being a researcher, but looking at that information and the correlation between what you're saying, what you're doing is just really, really incredible. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now, what can people do to help support this initiative and get the word out there, spread it, let others know about it? What's the best advice you can give to to other people? Well, thank you for that question. It's a great question. You can go on the website and get access to a lot of this information. You can share it. We also, thanks to Brain Canada, create a semi-annual magazine. It's a publication. It's called Mind Over Matter. And we had one woman take it into her book club. And she said, you know, can I get 12 more copies? Because we want to make the articles mandatory reading for the next discussion that we have. So we have a book and social program and all you have to do is download the form and tell us how many members are in your club and we'll send you the magazines while quantities last, which is great. And again, it's the latest information, but in lay speak so people can understand it. So I encourage you to do that with your social group if you can. We always accept donations, obviously, because that keeps us going in terms of more education programs, more research. And you know, you talked about younger. We started a program for middle school kids. So that's children in grades five to eight in English and French. It's free. Again, it was supported initially by the Ontario Ministry of Education, as well as some philanthropists. And again, it's all about the six pillars of brain health. But for the children, we call brain boosters. And then it talks about the things that are harmful for your brain health, untreated mental illness, concussion, too much social media, and ultimately dementia, obviously. And we call those brain busters. So even for kids as young as 10, it's important to get this information out. So they establish healthy habits before they get into the bad habits. Yeah, that education piece is so key. Sadly, one of my sons has had many concussions and everything that you've spoken to here are things that he has heard to be better. Like there's so much crossover when it comes to brain health and really just speaking to the fact that our brains are really, really important. We can't function without them. And I'm so pleased that you're doing what you're doing. This organization is incredible. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that you have more control than you may realize over your cognitive destiny and to understand what you can do to help yourself and your loved ones and share the information because everybody wants to be healthy and we want to protect our close circle and the bigger the circle, the stronger society will be. So please help share the information like you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And Lynn, I I really want to thank you as well because I think it's people like you in, in our communities, in our country that make a difference. You saw a problem, you saw a need you're working towards a solution, you're working towards a collective community to support you know, what people will be going through. And as our population ages, we're going to see more and more of this. So thank you for everything you've done. Thank you. Dementia, it's not a single disease. It's an overall term that covers a wide range of specific medical conditions, including Alzheimer's disease. Dementia is caused by damage to brain cells. The damage interferes with the ability of brain cells to communicate with each other. And when brain cells cannot communicate normally, your behavior, your thinking, and your feelings can be affected. Alzheimer's disease accounts for 60 to 80% of dementia cases. The causes include a combination of age-related changes in the brain, along with genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors. Some of the signs include memory loss that disrupts daily life, challenges in planning and problem-solving, confusion, new problems with words in speaking and writing. If you are concerned, connect with your doctor or a local organization for support. Life Unlocked Exercise and a healthy diet constantly come up when you're searching how to live well. And they seem to rank as the top two for our brain health. And that's saying something. So let's talk about exercise, specifically yoga. There have been many studies linking yoga to better mental and physical health. 
With its emphasis on breathing practices and meditation, it's not a surprise that yoga brings mental benefits, such as reduced anxiety and depression. What may surprise you is it actually makes your brain work better. According to an article published through the Harvard Medical School, studies using MRI scans and other brain imaging technology linked people who did yoga on a regular basis with a thicker cerebral cortex, the area of the brain responsible for information processing, as well as improvement in the hippocampus, the area of the brain involved in learning and memory. Science has shown that these areas of the brain typically shrink as you age, but long-time older yoga practitioners showed less shrinkage than those who didn't do yoga. Now, this makes the suggestion that yoga may counteract age-related declines in memory and other cognitive skills. Now, when it comes to what we eat, brain foods are those rich in antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, and healthy fats. To give you a few to consider, here's a good top 10 list to get you started. Beets. They're high in antioxidants and nitrates, which support the brain in clarity and attention span. Avocado, a superfood high in monounsaturated fats and rich in folate and vitamin K, which improve cognitive brain functions such as concentration and memory. Broccoli, a great veggie that is high in both choline and vitamin K. These nutrients contribute to memory function and focus. Salmon, a fish very high in omega-3 fatty acids, which can help reduce brain fog and increase memory and concentration. Walnuts, rich in minerals, vitamins, and antioxidants. And snacking on walnuts has been linked to an increase in memory, alertness, and concentration. Blueberries have one of the highest antioxidant levels of any food and can protect the brain from toxins, degeneration, and stress. Turmeric, a spice that has long been thought to have strong healing and anti-inflammatory properties, thanks to the compound curcumin. Coconut oil is a diverse superfood. It has powerful anti-inflammatory properties and can boost memory and cognitive function. Oranges are rich in vitamin C, an antioxidant that fights off free radicals that can damage brain cells. And one of my faves, dark chocolate, with the potential to increase blood flow to the brain that can improve all-around cognitive function. But to reap all the benefits of chocolate, opt for varieties that are at least 70% cacao. Healthy eating is not dieting. So when you think about building a healthy diet, do your research. Talk to your doctor, naturopath, dietitian, nutritionist, or a holistic nutritionist to help support you on your journey to a healthier body and mind. Mindfulness is really the practice of being aware of what's going on in the moment. Some people add, you know, without judging it, so just really observing. Researchers in Australia decided to take a look at how mindfulness can improve your ability to pay attention. In their research, they analyzed data from 81 healthy adults over 60 who participated in the trial to assess both the immediate effects and long-term effects on attention and brain physiology. The Australian researchers found mindfulness helped participants see information more accurately and help participants focus on the task and ignore distractions. The research showed that by practicing cognitive skills such as mindfulness, you can literally change your mind. 
So to help us better understand what mindfulness is, I turn to Anthony Berlingeri from natureofmindfulness.com and a 15-year veteran of mindfulness practice. Anthony, let's start with a bit of your story. What brought you to teach mindfulness? I always say that the practice really came to me in very synchronistic ways. I wasn't seeking it. It would just literally find me time and time again in very synchronistic ways. And so that's kind of what forced me really to dig a little bit deeper because I knew there was some substance there. Because anything that shows up time and time again, I feel like we're called to it. I've been teaching for about 10 years and I now have an online platform, which is amazing because I'm able to share a lot of these same tools and strategies and make them accessible to anyone at any time and from anywhere. And it's such a beautiful story and a journey when we find something that just keeps coming to us, right? And we're like, this is the path that I need to be on. And I think when it comes to mindfulness and meditation, a lot of people just think that's just too big of a world for me. I don't get it and it's weird or I just don't understand what this is going to do for us. Is there a way to simplify what meditation truly is? Absolutely. It's a deep awareness. And that word awareness could be focus, presence. It's really practicing the art of just being in the moment. And that could be while you're practicing meditation. Obviously, that's a tool or a strategy or even an exercise to teach your mind how to focus. But really, mindfulness is just the art of being aware, the art of being present. Which is really hard for a lot of people. (laughs) Totally. And everyone's going to have different ways that they're able to tap into that. For some people, it might not even be a seated practice. And this is where mindfulness differs from meditation. Meditation is a technique. It's a practice that teaches you how to focus. But mindfulness is sort of taking that focus and awareness and applying it to anything. So whether you're on a nature hike, whether you're playing an instrument, whatever's bringing you into the moment. And different people have different ways of accessing that presence, depending on how you're wired and depending on what you're interested in. And I think that that's almost the key in all of this is the fact that mindfulness, you can practice anywhere. And I think that's easier for people to start with. But talk about how you can be mindful when you're out in nature. Talk us through what that feels like and looks like. So for me, I feel like there's usually one indicating factor when I'm present. And I say it's just all about being embodied, whatever brings us into our body, whatever brings us into our senses. And so for some people, you know, it's just to have that repetitive movement of taking step after step, anything that sort of brings you into your senses. And so another big thing for me is just being mindful of breath. And I think the reason why breath is so important is because it's actually regulating the nervous system. It's sort of the gateway that tells our nervous system whether we're stressed or whether we're relaxed. And so if we can just be mindful of our breathing, it has a very calming effect. It actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxed response. Because the truth is, is whenever we're relaxed, we're so much better able to connect to the moment. If we're in a frantic or anxious state, often we're sort of anticipating what's to come next or we're fearful of what's to come. And so if we're able to just sort of tune into the present moment, connect to our breath, connect to our body, as a byproduct of that, we enter this really relaxed state. And I feel like everyone wants to feel more relaxed and more calm. We're finding, I think people are anxious over things that never bothered them before. And being mindful of that and then finding ways to work through it, I think is just so key. Absolutely. And that's the thing with perpetual stress. We sort of have a stress load, let's say. And when we're in a perpetual state of stress, what we know is that the brain rewires. And so we might be triggered by something that's not even 
similar to an experience that we've been through. Perhaps normally we're really able to stay calm under stressful situations, but when somebody's in a perpetual state of stress, the brain literally rewires to bring that same state of mind to everything we're doing. Right? And so this is why meditation is such an important practice because it really sort of clears the slate and it really allows you to take that same presence that you're cultivating and to take that same state of mind, which is a relaxed state, and apply it to whatever else you're working through in your life. And so it's sort of something you can take and apply to anything and everything. And there's a huge plus from out of the pandemic and because now people can find people like you online. They can just search it and find the tools that they need to help themselves. I still think it's beautiful to be in person because of the energy and everything else that's there. But what a great way to start by tapping into what you can bring to the table and allow people to start trying it at home first and then see Mm -hmm. if they want to continue on that journey. I think that's part of my mission now is making this accessible. And it's like anything, you know, we can talk about how beneficial it is, but if you don't have the tools to put it into practice, you're not going to experience that. And so content has been a huge shift for me. And to now have those resources to share with people has been so positive. And I'm connecting with people from all over the world. And it's just sort of furthering my mission to share this practice. So I feel so grateful for that. So for people listening that just want to understand and experience proper breath work, because we're very shallow breathers, we breathe just through the upper part of our lungs. You said something really interesting just about how we're really shallow breathers. Just to understand the science of how the nervous system works, help us to then understand how the techniques work. And that's a huge indication when we're in a stress state, when we're in fight or flight, that's something the body does is it breathes shallow and rapidly. And this is just because, you know, when we're in fight or flight, we're meant to be fighting, we're meant to be either running from stressful situations. And so that's the body's way of amping itself up. It's a physiological response that happens. And so if we can counteract that, if we can do the opposite of what you just said, which is slow, deep breathing, we're going to activate what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, and that's the relaxed response in the body. And so that's the key. Any sort of breathing exercise is to sort of induce that state within your breathing, which then has a chain reaction and puts you into a calm state. And so slow, deep breathing is where it's at. That's a good way to reset your nervous system. But what I think is even more important, or just as important, I should say, is just paying attention to your natural breathing. And so you could always start with a breathing exercise. Maybe it's taking three minutes to just count, you know, count of four. And then once you're done that for one to three minutes, just paying attention to your natural breath without counting, without forcing, just allowing breath to happen can change your life. And isn't that a simple way to bring calmness into your life and help your brain health? By just being more mindful. Totally. And you know what? I feel like you notice the difference, right? It's one of those things like a lot of meditation practices can take time. They might be frustrating like anything that's new, but breathing is simple. And because it's sort of the first thing that happens when our nervous system switches from a state of stress to a state of recovery, it's something you'll notice a difference with. Some of the other techniques can take a little bit of time, a little bit of practice to go anywhere. You can spin your wheels a little bit, but breathing is something you'll notice a difference in your nervous system pretty much immediately. Really appreciate you doing this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Meditation Moment. For a meditation moment, let's talk music. 
In my research around brain health, I came across a myriad of articles on how music keeps your brain network strong. So I thought, what is it about music that's so good for our brain? As a matter of fact, research has connected music to enhanced learning, the stimulation of cognitive function, improving the quality of life, and it can induce happiness. Why? Well, according to a paper published in Harvard Health, the answer is that music can activate almost all brain regions and networks. In fact, there's only one other situation in which you can activate so many brain networks all at once, and that's when you participate in social activities, which is one of the six pillars of brain health. Now, if you want to get even more out of your music listening, try music that's new to you. Experts suggest new music challenges the brain in a way that old music doesn't. But if nothing else, put on that familiar tune and dance. Or find a song that calms you. Either way, you're helping your brain. Life is challenging. And choosing wellness in our daily lives may seem like adding to the already long to-do list. But together, we can make it easier. On the next Choosing Wellness, we focus on the immune system, including unlocking what you can do for allergies. And our health tag will focus on parenting. I'm Linda Freeman. Let's connect again soon as together we take the journey of Choosing Wellness. You've been listening to Choosing Wellness, an initiative powered by Pattison Media designed to inspire and motivate a healthy life. For more information on this program, go to pattisonmedia.com and everythinglifestyle.ca. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.